welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a talk from the 60th New York Film Festival with photographer, artist, and activist Nan Golden, moderated by NYFF programmer Rachel Rakes. In the NYFF 60 centerpiece selection, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, documentarian Laura Poitras takes as her subject Nan Golden, an era-defining artist who rose from the New York no-wave underground to become one of the great photographers of the late 20th century, Golden put herself at the forefront of the battle against the Sackler family and their pharmaceutical empire, both as an activist at art institutions around the world that had accepted millions from the Sacklers, and as an advocate for the destigmatization of drug addiction. This intimate career-spanning conversation with Golden dove into the personal and political roots of her creative practice, the radical humanism of her photography, and the defiant intertwinings of her art and activism. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed opens on November 23rd in our theaters. Don't miss our Q&A with director Laura Poitras and pain activist Harry Cullen on November 26th. Get showtimes and tickets at filmlink.org beauty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we agreed. First, first rule: we're gonna we're going to try to have fun. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about politics. <laughs> um, no, I actually actually want to. Um, so all the beauty and bloodshed. Um, the the reason that we're here today, uh, along with all of your your life's work, uh, the film the centerpiece film by Laura Poitras is kind of, it does this sort of parallel of your activist work and your artist's work and a little bit of a portrait of you, of you as a person uh, growing up. But what comes through very clearly is the obvious, this, this lifeline of, of activist politics and the say real politic world, but then also how much politics have always been in your art. And I guess I wanted to ask you, I hope it's not too basic of a question, but like, have you always seen your art as having politics in it? Um, I think that, first of all, I don't make my art work with pre-intentions. Mm -hmm. My actual photography, photography is in response to what's in front of me, to people I love, to get as close to people and as empathetic with other people as possible. That's what drives the actual photography. Then the constructs come afterwards. What? Maybe, yeah, a little bit closer. So they, yeah. Hi. Is that better? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Then comes the constructs and uh, the way that I use the work. So I guess in 1980, there was a woman running the bar that I was working at. She's in the film, Maggie Smith, at Tin Pan Alley. And she was the first one who made me aware of how political my work was. She saw a very early version of the Ballad of Sexual Dependency and she saw it as very political about what was then called gender, uh, sexual choices, and uh, the choices of how to live in the world, in your sex, and the relation between the sexes and the difficulties in that. And so she was the first to make me aware that my work was political, and then I carried that on. But I didn't do the work for political purposes, 
Yeah, but you found it along the way, or in looking back, or yeah. It, it, or I applied it, it in those ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a, maybe. Can you? Would you say there's an ethic? Are you okay with that word? Or an epic? Ethic. <laughs> an ethic. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Something like that. Definitely. Um, I remember I read an interview a while ago with you <laughs> from Bomb from the early '90s. Excuse uh. me for bringing it up. I hope it's fine. Um, <laughs> Where you talk about there's like a, a sort of a moment of, of politics that you noticed that happen in the making of the slideshows that by this juxtaposition of, of image after image puts together this uh, sexual or queer or gender you know p or power kind of politics through the kind of the movement through the the succession of images. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think most of my work is editing. That's what I am. I have thousands and thousands of pictures. And my actual, quote, practice is editing. For, and now I'm not photographing anymore. It's entirely from my archive. But all along, like I was saying, what I take the pictures or what I took the pictures from and how I use them were two different things. So yeah, it's in the construction of the slideshows that it becomes more determined. And whether that's about gender or about living with AIDS or about stigma or any of that, it comes after the fact. Yeah, and you've um, spoken in the past about how you, you've constructed your work, much of your work in such a way that you can always keep editing. Yeah. And so thus kind of update the politics to the time. Um, and Not I, just yeah. the politics, the relationships. Uh -huh. And yeah. how I see people and you know my life and my view on the world, not just politically, but emotionally. And for instance, I just did a new version of the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, 1982 to 2022. So it's still the same uh, construct in terms of music and categories, but I always add new pictures. Mm -hmm. And that makes it exciting, makes it alive. And that's the difference between me and a filmmaker. Yeah. Now I was thinking about that in, in terms of the other side and the recent um, book and show yeah. that you did of that where like so even the book which is more like a film in its sort of concrete object sort of stuckness um, you also updated that even yeah. or were able to, uh, to edit that so you're like finding a way to yeah. keep editing anyway which I think is a really is a smart strategy <laughs> well the 92 version and the 2021 version are being published in very different climates yeah. with very different language no, and it's nice to have the ability, well, to always want to be updating anyway, but to have the ability to do that, to make these more sort of malleable things. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe we can talk a, a bit about your relationship to film since we're at a festival. And yeah. um, I know that, yeah, it's something that you've, you've, you've spoken a lot about how, you know, the, the slideshows act in a very cinematic way. They're captive, they're meant to be live, they're, they're soundtrack, they're, they're, they're successive. Um, they're not meant for, for a screen, but also that, you know, you've always kind of longed for or admired filmmaking and um, that your sort of next show, you're going to present yourself as a filmmaker, yeah. right? Yeah. Do you want to talk more about that? I'm cheating. I hope no one minds. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm having a big retrospective that opens in Sweden in this month and then is traveling around Europe and I'm presenting myself as a filmmaker each slideshow, it's six slideshows, and each one will have its own building. 
So I'm working with an architect to design a village of slideshows. And the, the conceit is that I'm presenting myself as a filmmaker for the first time. Um, film has been the most important medium to me since I was a kid. I went to a hippie free school. We had two classes. One was Italian and one was Ontology Recapitulates Phylogeny. W which took place once. And uh, so we spent all our time at the Orson Welles Cinema in Cambridge. And we went several times a week, and they used to play three films at a time. I remember I saw The Mother and the Whore when I was like 15. I saw Flaming Creatures, which had a, at, actually at a Catholic college in Boston, which had a huge effect on me. I saw Warhol, and then we saw the goddesses, Marilyn, Marlene, Barbara Stanwyck. So I started, and I always wanted to be a filmmaker, and I still do. I want to make, the next thing I want to make is a um, costume drama. <laughs> a comedy, preferably. Yeah. When you have, well, there's a couple of recent shorter works where you've begun to experiment with yeah. the form, right? Think, like working on found footage and montage. And yeah. So it's sort of, yeah, gearing, gearing up for this. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a new piece called Sirens. It's in the Venice Biennale, and it's comprised entirely of found footage. And it's, um, it's meant to uh, make you feel the pleasures of being high, like the intoxication and seduction of drugs. And it's filmmakers from Kenneth Anger to um, Lynn Ramsey to Warhol. Yeah, it's, I loved doing it. It's my first found footage piece, and I loved it. To get back to politics, um, <laughs> I want to talk a bit about the aesthetics of pain and you know the the choices that uh, you and the and the group, some of whom are are here today as well, um, make in the in the in the demonstrations, the performances, um, in yeah, just the overall sort of aesthetics of of the protest. Um, maybe just broadly about that, and I'll ask some more specific questions, but just some choices there. Uh, we work as a, a real uh, communal group in the fact that nobody, all the groups kind of all the ideas circulate, and people you know, roll off of each other. And pretty early on, it became clear that I needed some updating, that I wasn't aware of the power of the media, using them in terms of getting the message out there. I was always very clear that I didn't want to do any demonstrations. Like, we, we uh, went to the DIA several times to case the place, and there was never anyone there. Mm. So I said I wouldn't do a, action there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was really important to me, that the audience be there. I mean, that, that there be other people, that there be museum goers there. And the kids and I, I mean, the people I work with, designed performative actions in relation to the place. Mm -hmm. So we threw thousands of fake OxyContin bottles in the water around the Temple of Dender, through prescriptions from the uh, down the atrium in the Guggenheim. Uh, each time we made a pamphlet that matched those hello pamphlets that are given out at museums. 
So we kept things very clearly defined to each space. And out of six museums that we did demonstrations at, I can say happily that five have t taken down the Sackler name. So that's a huge success that we had. As a s yeah, there's a, a moment at the end of the, of the film where you say, you know, this is, the lawsuits haven't, haven't really succeeded, you know, we haven't bankrupted, bankrupted them yet, but this is the one place, like the arena of the art world where some kind of success has happened. Um, and I guess I, I wanna push on that a little bit and like um, ask what you or what, the, or what the pain group is, you know, is thinking about how to kind of further activate, like can you still keep using art to do more, you know what I mean, to go even further? Can you use the, the, the real and symbolic successes from you know, from these, these with the, the, the withholding of the funding and the name? I think we succeeded in shaming the Sacklers. Um, and I think we also changed the uh, narrative around museum boards. I think there's a lot more investigation into where billionaires who are in the art world, who are on the boards, are getting their money. It's a lot more cry for accountability in those situations. I think, you know, we've, we kind of were part of igniting that. And groups like Decolonize This and others have, you know, BP, not BP, we've worked in conjunction with. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a small group had a big success. So that's success in these times when Billionaires can get away with, and like as we know from our ex-president, can get away with absolutely anything. And so the fact that we were able to hold a billionaire family accountable is, uh, you know, freaky. Yeah. It's so unexpected. Uh, from here, I think, you know, we're aware that changing the, the, some of the uh, narrative around pharmaceutical companies and they're evil and they're, how much they're funding the government and how much they're controlling uh, the fact that there's no health in, health, free health insurance in this country and all the ways that they're impacting the actual government. But all of this is not helping to keep people alive enough. You know, there's still a huge overdose crisis. 108,000 peop people died last year. And it will be even more, I'm sure, when they tally this year. And, so that's become the main focus of the group, is more, less in the museums, less in the cultural spaces. But I feel like this film is an act of, of you know, political action. Yeah. No, it's another, it's another component, in a, and I think probably it will, it will be a huge one. Yeah. Um, it made me think about uh, United in Anger, the ACT UP documentary, and also there's a lot of act up in, in, in the film, of course, because of your involvement with so, with so much of the AIDS activism. But um, I, was, I went back to their, to their website from the film today, from United in Anger, and it's really like so practical, right, from, uh, for, for, for ACT UP. So like from, from the United in Anger website, it's like, you know, full breakdown of like the affinity groups, how to start this, what are the tools we use, what do you do? And it's just like this amazing resource that comes out of this film that was then bringing, you know, sort of bringing back to the fore this movement that really never went away. No, never. 
No, I mean, I think I probably didn't do enough study in what it meant to lead an activist group. And we didn't ever become larger. We didn't, a lot of people worked with us demonstrating, but the core group, like the early Silence Equals Death Collective, the precursor to, a, to ACT UP, we met in my living room every week, and that's where it all came from. But ACT UP became you know, much, much larger with different groups, and we, we never expanded that way. But we, you know, we learned everything from them. Not necessarily the construct of the high, the, you know, it's absolutely horizontal. There's no leaders or, you know. And that was true in ACT UP too, where they tried, you know. And you can see this in, you know, uh, the the movement or the gesture of the die-in, right? Yeah. Like it's like you, at least from a certain generation, maybe me, my age exactly and older, <laughs> notice like we remember, remember that, you know, we're able to be like, ah, yeah, that's that's meaningful now, but it's also a gesture to to this work from the late 80s and early 90s and, and on. Yeah, I um, mean, I was in die-ins when Queer Nation first started. We did die-ins during, you know, gay pride and other demonstrations. So I, kn I knew about die-ins. And I realized over the you know, couple of years that die-ins are a lot more effective when they're silent with a drummer. And it's much deeper and more mournful. At first we were screaming while we were lying on the ground. And when I look at that, it seems a little weird. But <laughs> you, le you learn as you go along. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about if you have impressions or opinions on social practice art or you know art that really art that really in, like sort of becomes political or really blurs the line between art and politics do i have an opinion yeah <laughs> uh yeah of course i love some of it <laughs> and uh you know when i first started pain and people were like well you know what's your practice pain was my practice and we weren't, I wasn't making political art. The politics were my art. Like, you know, I was in Denver Museum as part of a show of political art, and I didn't feel connected to, you know, it wasn't made to be on walls. You know, we were breaking the walls down, and that was the art form. But yeah, of course I, you know, there's political artists I much respect. Tanya, yeah, yeah I did an interview with her or we had a talk while she was under house arrest in Cuba. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe the, the museum and the show in Denver, I mean, I know that you have used um, the, like, the threat to not show your work, right? Or I don't know if to, to deaccession it, but to not show your work in certain museums as a way of, you know, as a sort of bargaining device. Have you also said, I, you know, I will do a show under the condition that we can spread, you know, spread this news or do these politics? Is that another? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was true there. It's true in Balzano and the show that we're in now, a political art show. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think where else that's true. I, yeah, that has happened. I um, more remember all the times I threatened not to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I don't know how it affected my career. It's possible that there's a lot of museums that would have included me in shows mm -hmm. that were scared of me. I know that Tate was terrified of us, and uh, yeah, we would hear how Guggenheim right. was afraid of me. You know, we made a lot of noise. Right, so there's like 
presumed kind of pre-censoring, right? Yeah. Just like don't even mess with it then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think yeah. about that. Yeah, there was an artist curated show at the Guggenheim in 2018, I think, and Jenny Holzer and Carrie Mae Weems had these chosen pieces of mine. And I was going to demand they not be shown. In the Guggenheim, we had just done the action. But I wanted it to have an effect, like somehow people would know that I was holding it back. And then the Guggenheim took down, stopped taking the money, like the next week, so. <laughs> like, oh. I was usurped. <laughs> I didn't have to do it. Yeah, like I wanted to do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but like now it sounds like you're in a position where you're kind of able to to work on kind of parallel strands of practice, a practice that feels like it is is somehow you know not directly the activism. You know, back to a, you're not make, you're well making films, I guess. <laughs> um, no, you know, I'm taking home, photos. You know, making my slideshows yeah. for this big show and. I'm doing a nine-volume box set of, uh, th you know, thousands of pictures will be. All of my slideshows in their entirety are going to be published in nine volumes. How, for, for, sorry, for what, like, what media, for what, what form, what ultimate in, form? Okay, so yeah. Gerhard Steidel makes books. He's like the great yeah. photography printer, and we're making a box set with nine volumes. It's like August Sanders or William Eggleston did and each volume will be a slideshow in its entirety, mm -hmm. you know, printed within the book. So I'm working, you know, on all that. So, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with myself right now. <laughs> I have to say. I, yeah, uh, maybe that brings me to, uh, back to the film a little bit. Um, your work is often about memory and preservation. Um, maybe, maybe always, maybe at first preservation, and then over time about sort of uh, making sure that there was a memory if you couldn't trust yourself to have one, right? Or that there was a collective memory or like this sort of testament. And I was wondering if the f the process of the f making the film, I, I kind of presume it must have like it must have dredged up so much or changed your sort of sense of memory. Like, is this does this have a fundamental sort of change on the way you see your life and work, or? It definitely dredged up a deep, deep memories, yes, of things I hadn't remembered. It's very scary in that way. Like I say in the film, you know, you have stories about your life and you repeat them mm -hmm. and you believe them and they're true, but then they become a story and they're neat and they're, you know, they have endings and then real memory doesn't have endings and it's scary mm -hmm. and it's unpredictable. You can't really control it. So yeah, Laura did some very deep, deep interviews with me that went much deeper and much more intense than I had expected. I also gave her access to a box of documents of my sister. That was the most personal thing I have. And I gave her you know, access to that. So it, it's, you know, it's been painful. I mean, I, the political part is is the easier part, the political part of the film. You know, it's beautiful, it's perfectly done to my mind. I mean, the personal is much harder for me, obviously, and more painful. But this is right. This is, I think Dennis brought this up at the press conference. This is Laura's move. This, this like, weaving, weaving of personal and political. Yeah, and it's this, crazy. Yeah. It's crazy and it's yeah. great and it works beautifully. And I think that's the power of the film. 
it, it started with just being about pain. Then she became interested in the show that I did in the 80s about AIDS. And then increasingly, as we talked, she became more interested in the work I was making and the piece Sister Saints and Sybils that I'd done about my sister and then about family and suburbia and how that incited my rebellion. Yeah, and this, you, you finally see these, um, these like, or these kind of unearthed uh, Im video images of your, of your family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mother and father. <laughs> yeah. Nuts. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, I had started a film in 2004 about my sister that never got finished, and that's footage from that. A lot of the images of mental hospitals are footage uh, were also taken during the making of that, attempted making of that film. And, uh, yeah. I mean, Laura had went through an incredible amount of interviews, and, I mean, because, no, I... I have vast archives of images and old material and films and documents, and somehow she managed to go through all of that, which is to me incredible. It would take me you know decades to go through all of that, but they managed to do it and find you know value find the find the valuable more editing yeah yeah <laughs> always always editing We can start to open it up to questions. I imagine you have them, otherwise I will continue. And I don't know if there are mics, no mics? Okay, and there are mics there. Who shall begin? Uh, yes. Well, normally there's a, you know, I know the people deeply. I mean, you caught me with one that I don't, so <laughs> it makes it look, you know, like uh, what she's saying, is that real? But normally, I know people deeply, and I re photograph them over years. And what I really want to do in photography, or what I did when I was a portraitist, is try to feel what it felt to be another person's skin. And that's the dilemma of being human, right? that we never really know what it's like to be in another person's skin. And that's what I wanted to try to find out. Does that answer your question? Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank you. I, I, I don't think it was a moment. Like, it wasn't like, boom. Uh, it just happened gradually. I think I was pretty... Um, some years I was pretty like locked in my room and not seeing people. So I think that's when I stopped the practice of photographing people. And then, you know, I became interested in the sky. I still take a lot of pictures of the sky. And I also like to photograph paintings. I did a project called Scopophilia at the Louvre where I photographed paintings, like little parts of paintings. and put them in relation to my pictures of my friends. And I still like, I went to the Met recently, I went to the Frick recently. I still like to do that. Occasionally I'm offered a job and I do it if it's somebody I like, like Isabel Hubert or Kelsey Liu or Ocean Vong. I've photographed those people recently. But um, I don't know, you know, my friends are old, we're old, you know. <laughs> 
ah, people don't look quite the same, you know. <laughs> we were young, we were beautiful, you know. But now I want to do something about age, so yeah, I guess I'll start photographing again. Thank you for that question. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't really pre-think things. When I read the article about the Sacklers, I said I have to do something. I knew about tobacco, you know, heads of tobacco companies being shamed, and I thought that's what I want to do. I want them to go to parties and be shamed. So that was my first idea. I didn't think, what will this do to my career? Because I just don't pre-think things. But as I started to organize with my friends, that came up. And I didn't care, because I had to do what I, when I have to do something, I have to do it. So, you know, I'm driven. So I had to do it. But yeah, I mean, I probably was blacklisted from some museums, like I said. You know, uh, I'm sure there's museums that didn't want to deal with me. Did you go through this same uh, same fear or like possible threat or tension when organizing the show at Artist Space? So well, I wasn't expecting us to be censored then. Yeah. 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 But you know, we were censored. We were the NEA took away our grant. You know, it, it was censorship mm -hmm. and. It was mostly directed at David Warnerovich's article. That's, then they said there, none of the art had any merit, but originally it was David's fabulous piece that provoked that. Was there an aftermath personally for your work? Or? Um, I was showing at the time at Pace McGill, and they had no idea what was going on downtown, and they weren't interested. Wow. No, really. During that whole thing, I went to dinner with the director and, you know, collectors, and I was talking about they had no fucking clue what, excuse me, what I was talking about, nor were they interested in the least. Mm -hmm. It was a real division between uptown and downtown. Wow. As I was days. Different geographies. Yeah. Shit. No, I mean, it's, a, it's also a selfish question, because as a, as a curator, I'm also looking at, you know, to sort of ways to, always looking at ways to sort of delve directly into, you know, like to really make a splash politically, to make, to make sort of changes beyond mm. representation, right? You know, beyond, beyond working with artists who are political, but finding ways to do politics yeah. through that. And so that, that, show is, um, that show is one moment where you can see that that kind yeah. of happened, right? Yeah. So are you, gonna, are you ever gonna curate something again? Is this yeah. impossible? <laughs> yeah, let's talk. Yeah. That's very interesting. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. let's talk. I mean, <laughs> anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Laura um, gave me the gift of allowing me to have some say in what was used because I would not have given those interviews without that. There was no way I was going to talk that deeply and openly without some control over what was used in my voice. It's my voice telling my story. It's my images. It has to be my truth. And you know, when we talk, you can edit all kinds of things that you know, feel true or less true of what someone says. So we discuss that often. Um, now, I didn't have Final Cut, which is you know, odd for me and hard for me. But I had a lot of input, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, it's a big issue for me, control. I've been controlling my own slideshows and you know, my 
own way of showing my truth and my way of telling stories. And Laura's way of telling stories is different than my way of telling stories. But you know, I have enormous respect for what she did with my stories. Uh, okay, middle, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Is there no question? <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm pr the proudest thing about that film is that I became the musical consultant on that film. The you know, Lucinda Williams came from me. Suicide came from me. The composer Soundwall came from me. So that's you know actually what I'm proudest of. I sound scores, music score, film scores are incredibly important to me now. It, if I don't like the music, I can't watch the film. And, uh, you know, if it, Johnny Greenwood does the music, I'll stay through anything. So, you know, there, and, you know, many others, um, I actually find it more and more important. So, uh, I, yeah, I worked on this score, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm very proud about, I mean, it starts with Klaus Nomi's Cold Song, which comes from one of my slideshows. So yeah, music's a huge part of my work. Thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. And now I use composers like Mika Levy did two of my last pieces, and that's even more fun, working with a composer. Will you be re-scoring re all of the slideshows in, the in these next shows? Or in the next two weeks? No, <laughs> in the next shows. <laughs> Okay, is that no, that's it? That's no, a, that's no, 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 not that it's <laughs> I'm not changing, not changing the soundtrack. Fair, fair. Um, okay, so Mika Levy was the first. We met in London at the Tate, and we really, really liked each other. She watched the ballad, and then we talked a little. I sent her a few pictures, and she sent me back exactly what I was thinking about, I swear to God. She sent me back this piece called Whistles for Sirens, and it's exactly what the piece is about, the seduction of drugs and the, you know, the fable of the sirens the song of the sirens dragging the sailors to their death you know, by intoxicating them. So she wrote this piece without us really defining what it was. And with Memory Lost, um, yeah, I talked to her. I mean, Memory Lost is kind of about drug withdrawal and what it's like to, to go through the darkness of addiction. And she got it. Half of it is her and half, it, half of it is Soundwalk who I went through a lot of their work to find the piece that I use. It's recorded at an opera school in Lithuania, and it's Rimsky Korsakov, and you hear the voices. And then the last piece in that is a friend of Mika Levy named C.J. Caldwell, and it's just completely cacophonic. So yeah, I'm more and more interested in, in these collaborations, and sometimes they work perfectly. It's beautiful, and you can curate the whole experience that way, eh? Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, I worship Laura. <laughs> and, you know, Citizen Four was incredible for me. I don't know, you know, they're, to me, they're more, less emotional than this work. You know, they're, they're, these are men who have state secrets. 
and you know I don't have any. And <laughs> I, did, I really honestly didn't think I was important enough. I was very nervous that Laura would you know find out that I, I wasn't that political, I wasn't important. You know, so they're different because these are men who are going up against, you know, the structures of government in a way that I guess I am too. I don't know, but in a different way. Um, but yeah, I I would not have worked with Laura if I didn't have such incredible respect for her work, her previous work. I'm not exactly sure what we're talking about, but let me talk about what I think. Um, most recovery-based communities are abstinent-based, and that can work for alcoholics. With opiate addicts, it has like a 9% recovery rate, and medication-assisted treatment has over 50%. So I think for opiate addicts, medication is absolutely necessary. And I think the recovery community has a really hard time with that. You're not considered sober if you're using medication. I mean, I still go to meetings. You know, my recovery is my recovery. And if I get something from going to meetings, then I go to meetings. And I don't ask for approval. I think young people need to know about medication-assisted treatment and not being shamed about it by the recovery community. Does that answer anything? Okay. And um, just one, yeah. And Payne, well, Payne talks about how you know the the Purdue, the Sackler Family um, Corporation, has managed to make money on recovery <laughs> as well as getting people addicted. Right. right. This Tango program. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if there's a strategy of Payne to also you know to also work on recovery ad advocacy. Are you or are you coordinating with other with other groups on that as well as the ad advocacy against this family? Well, yeah, the advocacy against this family has transmuted to yeah. more working with other groups on things like medication-assisted treatment and overdose prevention sites and, you know, the things that are can keep drug users alive. I mean, we're not, we're working on bills, you know, that are related to that, like, governmentally, that's where the attention is right now. It's where you know we've exposed the pharmaceutical companies' system systemic influ influence and this one pharmaceutical company and their family. I don't think that's our main objective now. I mean that work is basically done. What would you say is your main objective now? To keep drug users alive and to try to raise the stigma, like you know the stigma of drug use is ridiculous. People can drink as much as they want, you know. People need to get high. I mean, I don't anymore, but you know, people need relief, and using substances is normal. And the stigma has to, you know, it's just madness. That's what we're working on. I'm gonna take one or two more questions. I believe you had one, yeah. All right, that's what I'm working on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the group's doing lots of other things. Uh, no, I never thought of it that way. I mean, when I considered cooking my sister or 
Dave and my brother, it wasn't in relation to my siblings. It was in relation to what that could mean, really, to have a sister. I mean, I think after my sister's death, frankly, I've looked for a sister the rest of my life. And I had that with Suzanne, and I had that with Cookie, and uh, I have that with someone in Turkey right now. You know, having a, a close, close woman is extremely important to me. And yeah, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, Cookie was incredibly precious to me, as was David Armstrong, two of the most important people in my life. Thank you. Thank you. If there are one or two more burning questions, we can take it a couple minutes over. But yes. I mean, to my mind, I was always successful because I, I, you know, when I showed at Artist Space, that for me was success. I never looked at the prize. I always, I have to say, like, luckily, I always enjoyed the steps, so I always felt successful. I mean, my work has spoken to generations and generations, which is such a rare gift, and it's a gift I give and a gift I, I get back. Um, my own personal happiness. Um, I was happy this morning. <laughs> Watching TCM with someone I love in bed. So that's my happiness. Thank you. Movie, yeah.